Tech Sounds presents The Conscious Capitalists. Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism Movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our latest episode of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in making the world a better place through business, Raj Sasodia. Hey, Raj. Hey, Timothy. Good to see you again. See you. Welcome back from a long trip over to India. Good to have you back in North America. Yeah, it was intense. You know, I realized when you travel, time slows down and life gets much more intense. So... Those of us who worry about life going by too quickly, I think travel is the antidote. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, note taken at the beginning of the summer here as everybody gets ready to go on vacation. Well, today we have a fascinating guest. We have with us today Mary Josephs. She's the founder and CEO of Verit Advisors, which is a mid-market investment bank and advisory firm. And she is one of the people that's one of the most recognizable names in the ESOP world. She has more than 30 years of experience advising, structuring, and closing over 300 transactions for the ownership transition of middle market companies. We'll get into what ESOP stands for. Basically, it's employee shareholder ownership programs. But Mary's got a long history in this space of being with LaSalle Bank in Chicago and running their middle market ESOP advisory practice there, and then ABNN, Ambrose, LaSalle Corporate Finance. And when LaSalle was bought by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, she became the head of their ESOP Solutions Group. On top of that, after, you know, she has founded her own company, uh, Verit Advisors, which has grown tremendously in the last few years. She's been elected at one of the most influential women in market M&A by Merger and Acquisition Magazine in 2017, 2018, 2019, and 2020. I guess the COVID thing got in the middle there, but I expect that it'll be back again soon. And on top of that, she's a graduate of Marquette University in Economics and French and an MBA from the University of Chicago. Mary, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much, Timothy and Raj. It's absolutely a pleasure to be here. I look forward to the conversation. Well, you and I have had a lot of conversations uh, over the years wondering about conscious capitalism and employee ownership. And um, the ideas are like on parallel tracks. And so I've always been fascinated about where that Venn diagram ought to be in terms of where they overlap in terms of interests. But maybe for our listeners, just give us a brief overview of the idea of employee ownership, in particular the idea of an ESOP. Sure. Um, I'm happy to. It's something I'm very passionate about. Uh, ESOPs were put into law in the 70s. Uh, Congress did it intentionally uh, with the theory that by giving employees a piece of the rock, equity in the company they worked for, that America would remain more innovative and entrepreneurial. Over time, it's grown in popularity and support by Congress as we've seen outcomes of greater revenue growth, greater earnings, and 
in exponentially greater wealth in the retirement plans for employee owners. As such, Congress has given very significant uh, attractive tax benefits to invite business owners as they're looking at that incredibly difficult question of how do I leave a legacy? How do I get liquidity out of my business? How can I take care of my employees? What am I going to do with my business if I pass? Congress wants these private business owners to think about ESOPs as an alternative. So the tax benefits include the business owner being able to shelter capital gains tax that incur when you sell your business. And then further, there's corporate tax benefits where an ESOP-owned company is actually exempt from federal income taxes. So those are big carrots out there for for business owners. And I think we have a lot of employee-owned companies as members um, and participants in in the parallel path in your work, uh, Timothy and Raj of Conscious Capitalism. Yeah, well, I think one of the names that uh, comes up recently is a company by the name of Cliff Bar. <laughs> and Mary, I know you have some thoughts on that. Maybe you want to sort of give people a background on on Cliff Bar and their recent sale. Sure. Uh, Cliff Bar was actually the first comp- client we had when I started uh, my own business. And what a privilege to work with Gary and Kit Erickson. They are extraordinary humans that walk the talk of the five aspirations. The amount of time we spent curating an ESOP plan for Cliff was very unique. They were so focused on creating a retirement benefit for the employees of Cliff, rewarding the employees who helped them get from their entrepreneur stage to where they were in 2010 and incentivizing employees to participate in the continued growth of Cliff Bar. So that was 2010. Most recently, uh, Gary and Kit had the opportunity to sell Cliff Bar to Mondelez in a $2.9 billion transaction. You know, mathematically- Wait, wait, can you just say that number again? How many, what was the number? (laughs) 2.9 billion. That's what I thought you said, yeah. So exponential growth. And I haven't had the privilege to talk to Gary and Kit since the sale was announced, but I would am highly confident that this doesn't alter their vision, mission, and values. And they will redeploy what they are getting from the Mondelez transaction to continue to invest in the world in things that are that they're passionate about, which includes organic foods, climate, people, uh, investing in companies that have a mission like Cliff Bar does and helping them grow and prosper. Just before we, we go, I'd love to just dig in just a tiny bit on Cliff Bar. Sure. So two point several billion dollars and the employees, what chunk of that? And and put put a context around that for what that meant to employees in terms of maybe the average payout or did they sure. make any millionaires in there? <laughs> oh, there were I bet there are employees who had eight-figure balances. Um, so say round up to three billion. So 20% of that is a really big number, 600 million. So 600 million on average divided by the on 
reported number of employees is over 500,000 per employee. In reality, the employees that were there at the time we did the ESOP transaction, when Cliff was a much smaller company, mm. at the time they didn't have their manufacturing facilities in Indiana and Idaho. Uh, they were co-packing. Uh, so those employees would have gotten allocated a lot of shares uh, and then the more shares and then the share value grows over time. So mathematically, you would have quite a handsome number of, of millionaires out of that transaction. So, so just to put that in context, the average employee would have made somewhere around half a million dollars. And with a distribution, let's say some got only 200,000, but you might have had a number, a large number that had over a million dollars worth of benefits. Isn't that exciting? That's, That's why I love my work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you talk about wealth creation and how do we start getting at this wealth inequality issue? And boy, this is uh, this is a good story to tell. It is, uh, Mary. You mentioned the five aspirations in passing, or, or I had not heard that before. What is that? Sure, this was really important. In fact, uh, they wrote them into their bylaws. So businesses are often about profit right, or share, return to shareholders in the public domain. Gary was passionate that his, and it was written everywhere in the organization. It's people, planet, communities, brand, and business. So he sometimes when you look at social impact and mission-driven, people think you can do that without making a profit. So what was so inspiring about Gary's aspirations is it, he leads with the mission driven of people, planet, and communities, understands that supporting the brand and the business is the mechanism to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's like, you know, Raj and I often say conscious capitalism isn't an excuse for a good business model and a good business strategy. And, you know, there's a lot of other benefits that come, you know, from being a good to being a great company by following some of these things. I'm really curious as to what's the mindset of a founder when they come to you and say, I want to consider an ESOP. I, I've built this company up. It's my baby. It's, uh, and it's also my nest egg. It's how you know, I've uh, built wealth and created wealth for my family. Um, what goes through their head when they come to you and they say, I want to explore an ESOP or an employee ownership kind of move versus... I want to sell this to somebody else. Sure. That's a great question. And in my experience, I really believe many founder multi-generational family businesses, they don't know. It's a real conundrum because it is their life's work. It is their family's investment too. Families sacrificed a lot to support whomever was active in the business and grow the business. Employees, little employees. Um, and then this is all swirling in a marketplace of insane multiples. So one caveat is the entrepreneur doesn't want to, and I'm going to quote one of my favorite clients, Dick Couch, who was the founder of Hypertherm. Uh, the global leader in plasma technology, which is cutting with fire. And he had a strong vision, mission, and culture at Hypertherm. And he wanted to protect that. But he said, Mary, I don't want to be a chump. So they don't want to do something 
that's not fair for themselves and their families. But they're so attracted to the idea of a legacy and of an opportunity that the people who helped get them there can participate in the future growth and legacy of the company. That's really interesting. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, there are critics of ESOP because, I mean, it sounds great, right? I'm going to create wealth. I'm going to share the wealth with my employees. Um, but there are some people who point out that, you know, there's um, an ESOP was also set up as sort of a retirement plan. And as I understand it, and this may be naive on my part, um, you know, it's a highly concentrated um, retirement plan in the sense that if this company does really well, I do really well, and if the company doesn't do really well, then I've got a certain risk because all my eggs are in one basket. Is that a fair statement or is that an exaggeration? I'm so glad you brought this up because it is a fair statement. Uh, that is one of the concerns that we hear from House and Means and Treasury. Uh, the reality is that it is a retirement plan. It's supposed to be a retirement plan uh, for over your career, you can build a very attractive uh, safety net for yourself, for your retirement. In most ESOP transactions, say 90%, uh, the company in all ESOP transactions, if a company has a 401k plan, they still have a 401k plan. In 90%, if the company did a 401k match, they continue to do the 401k match. Sometimes they'll lessen it a little bit but not usually. People like 401ks. So this retirement tends to be over and above what the company had been doing already. With respect to it could go to zero, Raj and Timothy, absolutely. The ESOP is not an operating model. It's an ownership model. So just like any other business, cult, and, and I think we are aligned that culture, cult, what is, what's the line culture? Eat strategy for lunch. Yes, that's it. Thank you, Raj. Breakfast and dinner. <laughs> oh, I like that better. But you still need an operating model. And, you know, the ESOP is not an operating model. So let's go down that path. Although research that we worked with the National Center for Employee Ownership on suggests the default rate for ESOPs is 90% less than the default rate of any other diversified portfolio in the credit markets. But let's pretend we're in the 10%. Uh, and, it, and it would happen. Think of a fitness center during COVID that was employee-owned. So the employees aren't getting something they never would have had. Like the business model isn't working. Uh, so it's I don't view it that way. Um, you'll either have more retirement assets or maybe not. But it's better. It's gravy. You know, Mary, you've talked about a few different performance implications of this. I just like, would like to dig a little deeper on those. Sure. Uh, you talked about revenue growth, earnings growth. Um, uh, what, what are some specifics around that? Uh, and I think we can understand the reasons why that happens, but if we can look into that as well. So there's ownership, but there's also a voice. Employees are more likely to provide uh, input, suggestions, right? Uh, you know, their voices are heard. Absolutely. Things. A great case study by one of the migrant ESOP trustees, uh, Marilyn, Marquette, Marilyn Marchetti, she's retired now, but she would talk about, uh, and, and so the trustee owns the company, the, the ESOP. So she'd go in on a, about three months after a transaction closed, only three months, Raj, and 
uh, said, how's it going? Um, it was an industrial company that was forming metals into products, right, for, for businesses, B2B. And uh, the CFO said, see that waste, waste bin over there, which is where all the scrap would go. Uh, and he said, before the announcement to the employees of being employee owned, we were emptying that twice a day. And now we're emptying it once a week. So wow. it's there's behavior changes. And if, if you communicate to your employees the behaviors they can undertake to help the company be more profitable. So in a retailer, that's going to be shrink, turnover, training. In, in manufacturing, it's going to be on-time delivery, service, quality, uh, and waste. So these ESOP companies that are outperforming their peer group compounded annual 10% top and bottom line are communicating the key metrics that employees can undertake to help drive the differences and increase value. Now, I've often thought and wondered about that because on the, there's sort of the, here's an economic benefit, you're an owner now. But talk a little bit about the ownership mentality because I think that, that, that as I understand it, there's some ESOPs where it is a financial transaction and there's others where it's, we really want to drive this culture of ownership into the business. And my perception is that those things are, are much more successful. And that's one of the critical elements. Talk a little bit about your experience with, with truly building that culture of ownership inside a business. Um, sure. So, Tim and Raj, this is where there's the big intersection of that Venn diagram you were talking about at the beginning. The research from the National Center for Employee Ownership suggests two things have to be present to have that kind of performance return vis-a-vis -a, -vis a peer group. One is meaningful employee ownership. So, you know, 1% of the company probably won't move the needle for employees. Two, and very importantly, is communication. So you have to communicate to employees the what it means to be an owner, what it doesn't mean is operating control of the company. They don't sit in the boardroom. They're not doing hiring, firing decisions. They are participating in their retirement plan in the wealth creation of the company going forward. It does mean communicating how you in your job can, by doing and paying attention to key metrics that are important, are contributing to the performance in the bottom line. And therefore driving your own wealth creation. Because of that. Right, right. Yeah. And yeah. honestly, there are companies, ESOP-owned companies, that have employees retiring with seven-figure balances. You don't have to sell to Mondelez to get to be an employee of an ESOP company for 20 years and have six- and seven-figure balances. How does that work? Say a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, so I come and I started a company and it's worth, um, say, $50 million. And during its tenure as an employee, while I'm working there, it grows from $50 million to $250 million in value over a 20-year period. They do that by paying off debt and by implementing the communication strategy and by having a, a, a strong strategic plan and operating strategy. So everything's working together. And so then I retire. The 
stock that I got originally in my account when it was a $50 million has now grown fivefold. And I've continued to get stock every year. So there's a, a really exciting and inspiring um, sort of exponential growth in, in share value every year that can create really meaningful uh, retirement security for everyday Americans. Uh, you know, it's, it's it seems like mostly positive consequences of this and, and Congress has recognized that. So to what extent is this happening? Is this accelerating? What uh, proportion of companies are? So Raj, them? yeah, Raj, good news, bad news there. The ESOP, number of ESOPs has remained somewhat stagnant at around 7,000 companies. The plan assets under ESOPs and the number of employee owners has grown exponentially. The average uh, retirement balances in ESOP have grown exponentially. So why don't we see more? Um, I'm encouraged about some of the momentum and the talking points right now that I'm seeing coming out of the pandemic. Business owners are concerned that there could be this act of God that could dramatically affect the value of their business. So they're paying attention and prioritizing, forcing themselves to have the conversation with themselves and their families. Uh, what are we going to do with the business? Business owners have a preference to put their heads in the sand on it because it's a hard conversation. There's more entrance into the employee ownership world. What Pete Stavros is doing with KKR and Ownership Works, putting employee ownership into every one of their transactions is an extraordinary platform to continue to advocate and advance the benefits of gain sharing and wealth sharing with your entire workforce. Right now, what I see is more inbound inquiries on if an ESOP is going to work for them than I would have experienced five and 10 years ago. What about for large publicly traded companies, uh, not necessarily uh, ESOPs, but like I remember one of the unique things about Whole Foods used to be the stock options, which in a typical public company, I think 75% were given to the top five executives. Mm -hmm. At the time, Whole Foods, 93% of the stock options were given to rank and file employees and 7% went to the top 25 executive. So it was much more broadly distributed. Mm -hmm. Small amounts, small amounts, of course, but uh, made, a, made a difference. You know, people are able to put a down payment or buy a car, you know, things like that. So uh, right. are we seeing more of that in public companies larger? I know you're operating in the mid-market and mostly private companies. What I see, and this is not my area of expertise, but it is interesting, right, is Public companies and private companies and small businesses are all having a conversation about labor, talent, war for talent, the great resignation, and employee engagement. So they're more open to how are we going to fix this problem to drive, share, attract, and retain employees. They're throwing wage increases at it. I don't think wage increases does it. The data for young talent right now, what what does a person want, uh, suggests that they want uh, visibility to a career path. They want a personal and professional development. I think they want to be cared about, right? And come to your job and feel like it matters. You spend so much time working. So I feel like we've got a ways to go in the public domain 
is an overgeneralization to create a work environment where an individual doesn't feel like a metric or a number where I could get, if I, something happened and I left, it doesn't really matter. I just get replaced. You know, somebody else would pull into my parking place. And it is, as you all know, this is your area of expertise. It's really hard to change culture. You know, I think uh, in most companies, there's a kind of caste system, right? I mean, you have the executives, the managers, the fully, you know, college educated, full-time professionals, and they get one experience. And then you have the 85% or so of the employees who are actually doing the work. And for them, none of those things are, are possible, right? And I think having this kind of a um, an element where they also get shares, they also feel, you know, that they are a part of something would make an enormous difference. And I wish this would become a norm, you know? This is Peter, Pete Stavros's vision. Uh, I mean, from as co-head of, of the Americas for KKR, um, he's, he's dragged or lured his, um, his peers uh, from the largest investment banks uh, in the country to join this. And he's collected data that shows when you allow all employees to share in the growth of the company, it creates superior returns. And his hope is through continued evidence of how these companies perform so much better that there'll be sort of a a demand pull and the pension funds, which are funding so many of these companies or capital for so many of these companies will start demanding that there's uh, some of what you're talking about, Raj, employee ownership or gain sharing or however you want to word it uh, as a criteria for investment. And that would be extraordinary. And he is on a path to do that. I think that's extraordinary. I don't want that to go by because that seems like a big deal in the private equity businesses and KKR organizes some of the other top tier private equity firms form an organization that says, this is what we ought to be doing more of. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. The Prince of Darkness has suddenly come into the light. Right. <laughs> I mean, and he personally, uh, between him and KKR, they started, they funded it with $25 million of their own uh, to the ownership works in, in New York City. And they are all about make, bringing this dream to reality. In fact, our friend Nathan Heavy, uh, Timothy, is uh, making a documentary He's following one of these KKR companies that is in the process of uh, becoming employee-owned, and he's, he's, he's actually going to be uh, about five years to make that documentary because I think Pete invited him to say, let's just follow along on the story and see how it evolves over time and the impact it has on people's lives. You know, so that'll be interesting. What about the uh, uh, unionization and employee ownership? Is there any... Correlation, positive or negative, or these companies tend to be more or less. Okay, now we're getting into the <laughs> the, the nitty gritty questions. Um, so, permitted exclusions when you're employee owned, people you don't have to include in the ESA, which is broad based, include union workers. Permitted it includes exclusions. Huh. So I can, and unfortunately, you cannot include foreign workforce. So it's been a mixed bag, a very small handful of employee-owned companies, I'm going to say less than 20 of the 7,000, have gone through the very rigorous process of including the union workers uh, because the CEO felt that I want everybody 
rowing in the same direction. Why is it a very rigorous process? Because it opens the union negotiations and the historical kind of adversity between what the union workers get and what the you know non-union members get. And you know, would the union view getting employee ownership in exchange for the retirement benefits they already have? You know, historically, not so much. So then does the company want to overpay for or secure benefits? So there's many who have, who have traveled that. Also, if you think about it, if you exclude your union workforce, say it's 60% of your, of your workforce in some construction companies or, or industrial companies, maybe it's 70% of your workforce. The remaining minority part of your workforce are enjoying a really rich ESOP experience because they stock that is valued as the result of the entire workforce going to only 30% of the workforce. So, so why wouldn't unions be pushing? What, what is the union stance? Does it really come down to, you know, we don't want to take the risk on the, 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 the benefits that we've got today versus what this might offer? Exactly. What's the core issue? Is that really it? They yeah. think that somehow their workers are going to benefit more from traditional approaches to retirement benefits than this? Well, and yeah, I think it's sort of a leading that, question. You know? Yeah, it is. And, you know, neither of us know for sure. It's, I, I believe it's seeded in the conversation and relationship between unions and um, the companies. I will say that there's some bright lights out there. Uh, a gentleman named Steve Slay, he's currently with UKIPA. Uh, he used to be at um, the Aerospace Union, I believe that was the one. And, you know, he's been on a mission for years to try and create that Venn diagram you were talking about, Timothy and Raj, uh, between unions and ESOPs. He, he sees a real opportunity there to save companies. Um, we have done that in the past in the earlier years of ESOPs. Uh, Lutch Paper is an example. You can negotiate with the unions for wage concessions. Say they take 20% wage, 10% wage concessions. The present value of that is a dollar amount. And they would make, they would give the employees that in, in exchange for the wage concession to help um, to help fix a struggling business, reduce expenses, and save those jobs. Those were way more popular um, circa 1980s and 1990s. I have not seen that in the last eight years. And, and just to clarify, so it's a permitted exclusion. It's not a mm. mandated. Correct. You are allowed to exclude the union workers. Correct. Know. And most do, you would say? Most, most do, yeah. Well, I imagine In, that that creates some ill feeling uh, between the employees, right? Uh, groups of employees. You know? Yeah, it could. Um, I don't think the union, I don't think they spend a lot of time thinking about what, mm. you know, the other employees get. Um it's just a sticky wick, wicket because of the regulations around right. the unions. Right. Okay. And, and I, I'm curious, Mary, you, you, you highlighted in one of your recent blogs about what a large number of actual construction firms were going the ESOP route. And yet that is uh, a relatively highly unionized um, workforce. So I'm curious, what, what, what's, the, what's the big sort of push for these medium-sized construction owners to 
or, or those firms and and do they miss some of the value or benefit of employee ownership because it's spread so thinly um it's not, not spread thinly it's there's still hundreds and hundreds of of employee owners but no if back to our earlier conversation you are so intentional about communication and you're creating a culture so one company i know brings the union workers into their headquarters and offers more training coaching professional development back to what does somebody want today they they want to know what a career path is for them and how they can improve professionally and personally so the these leading construction companies are taking on uh, some of what they would do for their own employees and and doing it for the union employees as well. You know, I, I'm fascinated by the fact that you you know you you painted this picture where the number of ESOPs has stayed relatively flat. The value capture has increased exponentially, as you mentioned. Um, but you know, in, in a world where this discussion about wealth inequality is becoming more and more pertinent. Um, I, I, you know, where do you see the ESOP field going over the next five to 10 years? And, and is there any political momentum behind it? Or is it, you know, sort of stalled out somewhere? <laughs> um, well, we have uh, Jared Bernstein, who's an economist in the current administration, has uh, done a number of research projects prior to uh, being in the White House that uh, show the benefits of employee ownership. Uh, we've enjoyed bipartisan support, House, Senate, Democrat, Republican, and that has been really important to the continued support of the tax policy for ESOPs. Why, you know, over my career, over 30 years, have we not seen a growth in the total number of ESOPs? Uh, we just uh, Vera just undertook a research project to sort of try and dig into that. Uh, and unsurprising to us, the data for the non-ESOP, they surveyed ESOPers and non-ESOPers, if you will. Um, the data is, they don't even know how to spell ESOP. So information about what an ESOP is and that an ESOP is an alternative uh, is not widely available. We are seeing a growth in state chapters. Colorado has a Colorado Center of Employee Ownership. Vermont is the oldest Vermont Center for Employee Ownership and other states are following suit. Uh, I can talk to accountants and attorneys from really strong firms and they have no idea what an ESOP is. And so the advisors to the business owner are not fluent about ESOPs. That person that the business owner is gonna go talk to uh, isn't aware of it as an alternative. And investment banks, middle market investment banks, don't have the, the expertise or understanding in-house and tend to sell against it. Like, why would you sell to an ESOP? You know, we have private equity here. Um, so the business owner becomes confer confused and doesn't, as my friend Dick Couch said, doesn't want to be a chump and wants to do the right thing. It's really hard. What about the uh, B Corp movement? Is there, I would, I would imagine that B Corps would be more likely to think this way and would want to have the structure. Yeah, there's tremendous overlap between employee-owned companies that are 
A Corps and B Corps that aren't employee owned. So I'm thrilled with the growth in the B Corp world uh, and obviously appreciate that there's a tremendous overlap between the two. Mm -hmm. This is why I'm so, I think it's so important to have you on this, on the show, Mary, is that um, we've got to educate people about this being a viable financial option for owners. Because, you know, listen, the people that are attracted to conscious capitalism, their values are trending in this direction. Their worldview is that something, you know, that they're operating their company with the idea that purpose matter, that conscious uh, cultures, and they're, they're trying to develop themselves as, as conscious leaders. And um, it just seems to me there ought to be a lot more information available to B Corp leaders, to conscious capitalism leaders mm-hmm. around the advantages and opportunities that exist in this world. Um, How do we get that message to people? That's something I've been thinking about for decades, uh, Tim. I'm thinking success stories, right? So like a Cliff Bar, uh, Dance Goes Shoes, Bob's Red Mill, um, King Arthur Flower, names that the average American knows. To find out that they're employee-owned, it makes it feel a little bit more tangible publics down in uh, in the southeast oh, publics, really. the um, having resources to understand how to address the perceived objections to an ESA. so there's a perception that you can't get fair market value and that's not true you can absolutely get fair market value the ESOP is a financial buyer should be able to pay what private equity pays the real constraint, which is you're not going to get as much cash at close is true. So if you sell to private equity, you might get 80% of your value at close. If you sell to an ESOP, you're probably looking at closer to 40 or 50% of your value at close. So it has to be an entrepreneur that is willing to accept getting paid over time as compared to getting uh, more urgently. So those myths kind of swim around, like why would you sell for less than fair market value? And why would you leave so much risk on the table? Um, need, to be, need to be addressed. I think what Pete Stavros is doing, which is a much wider uh, soapbox, if you will, and a, a larger audience will attenuate corporate finance people, attorneys, accountants to the benefits of employee ownership, and that will more naturally segue into ESOPs. Yeah, and also, I mean, there are the tax advantages, and you know, clearly, there's some, some, there are some other goodies that go along with this. Um, so, so, Mary, if we, if, if we were to sort of say, you know, you're speaking to a, a CEO of a conscious capitalism company right now, what, what's your elevator pitch? My elevator pitch is this: it is absolutely worth your time to take an hour and talk to someone and investigate whether or not employee ownership aligns with the vision, mission, values, and future of your company. It may or may not, but there's compelling enough reasons through tax incentives, employee engagement, retirement security for your employees, partial or full liquidity path for your family, 
that is absolutely worth your time to investigate it amongst the strategies you're thinking about. And you know, as I think about this even more broadly, even in conscious capitalism, we talk about stakeholder integration, mm-hmm. which is that regardless of which hat you wear as a customer or an employee or a community member or a supplier, you want to feel like an owner. You want to feel like you're part of this company somehow. Mm-hmm. Right? And that doesn't require stock ownership, but I do remember some examples of companies that were actually giving stock to their most loyal customers, right? Instead oh my gosh, that's and great. So forth, right? Uh, and you can imagine like in Japan, of course, there's a lot of cross shareholding between suppliers and, mm-hmm. and companies and so forth, but it really connects them together and, and it creates kind of this multi-dimensional relationship uh, of stakeholders with the organization. So everybody is on the same side of the table. They're all pulling for the success. It reduces that adversarial energy that exists inside a lot of companies. So this is an important part of that. Thank you for sharing that. That's re- You're right. It's really an interesting way to look at it. I think the ESOP community itself, we do a, a dis, pause. We can, we can also be our worst adversaries. Mm-hmm. So some advisors will go in and talk to this person I was just talking to and say, hey, you should do 100% ESOP because then you don't have to pay taxes. So there's some education and behaviors of listening to what the entrepreneur wants not one size fits all with ESOPs. It might be something like giving stock options or you could just contribute stock to a retirement plan every year. You don't have to do this large, sophisticated, transformational, leveraged ESOP. And that information for sure isn't readily available to business owners. So finding somebody who is actually just going to listen and understand where you want to take your business and then offer alternatives. That's hard to find. I love it. I love it, Mary. That's uh, an incredibly important role you play in there. And one of the things we're always interested with our guests is that, you know, you've been passionate about this field for 30 years plus. And, you know, what is it about your own personal journey that makes this an important thing for you? Like, how does this align with Mary's values and Mary's you know, life history? Thank you so much for asking that. I haven't been asked that a lot. Uh, yeah, I'm a mom. I have five kids. I worked the whole time. Uh, so to leave your children uh, and go to work, you better be passionate about what you're doing, right? And I think about it this way. For, for a little girl who's really smart at math, how lucky am I to take you know, that skill uh, that I was gifted with and changed the lives of so many people I'll never meet. There's people walking into work feeling like they matter, who are who have retirement security. That's going to affect how they treat their families, how they reinvest into their communities. Uh, and that is so exciting to me. The fact that the little work I did for Cliff Bar now has all these millionaires and knowing the people in the culture, what they're going to do, that ripple effect, that is really inspiring. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I love it. I love Me it. Me too. I'm so, that's I'm great, so Mary. blessed. If, uh, if people want to know more about you and Barrett Advisors, how can they find out more? Oh, they can uh, go to our website. I have all our contact information or email Mary at Barrett.com. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. Raj, any, any final thoughts? 
No, I think this is an area we should continue to explore. Maybe we get Pete, uh, you know, on here and talk about it further. And maybe one of these companies that have gone through it. Like I'm actually down the street from uh, Harpoon, Harpoon Brewery here. And Dan, oh, that is a wonderful partial employee-owned company. There's yeah. a lot of mojo there and good beer too. Yeah, yeah. So, so I talked with Dan and I think we make like a, a module on this because I do, I think we agree, we all agree this is an important element that needs to be there and become the uh, the norm rather than the exception as we go forward. And we're a long way from there. I mean, 7,000 is good, but I mean, how many million companies there are? So we're still a tiny, tiny fraction of, of what needs to happen. So, but thank you so much, Mary. This was really enlightening and and uh, and heartening as well. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. they're good news stories. <laughs> yeah, it's a good news story. And thank you for being such a diligent pioneer in this because you've been a voice on this for 30 years. And, um, you know, you are one of the leading experts in the country on this. And so really, really, really pleased to have you today. Thank you for all the work you've done for all those thousands of people. Thank you. My pleasure. And thank you to our listeners. And if you enjoyed today's show on whatever channel you're listening to us on, please feel free to hit the subscribe button. And if you're over on Apple iTunes, feel free to give us a rating and give some comments and feedback on the show. And you can always go to theconsciouscapitalists.com where Raj and I have a little note where you can drop us a note about your thoughts and comments on this. And then finally, I'd like to thank our um, sponsors, the Tech Sounds, who produce this for us each week. Thank you, Max and Maria and the team. And Raj, who do you want to thank? Well, thanks also to the Conscious Enterprise Center at Tech, where I am uh, affiliated now, uh, for being part of this broader movement. It's really, uh, it's really giving it a lot of momentum. And thank you, Mary. And we'll see everybody next week. Thank you all.